Hey, can I just do a giveaway really quick before we get started? It's your, is it your birthday, really? Dominic, come on. Lying in church. He shook his head, no, it's not. This is, this is for Carrie and Kristen back here. I'm going to give them two gift cards. And then I'll tell you why. Because she showed up at the work day today in the coolest truck this church has ever seen. Right? When you, when you, I, I saw it pull in the parking lot. It's a blacked out dually turbo diesel. And I was like, who, who is that? Right? And there were four, I'm going to talk about, there were all four churches that are on campus here were all doing things here today. And, and so I, I know it's so good, isn't it? And I'm not going to lie, I had a selfish thought. I thought, whoever's driving that truck, I hope they're in City Life because that truck is awesome. And so thank you for having the coolest truck at the work day today. That's what that giveaway's for. That's what that giveaway's for. So good. Hey, let me read this story before I get into the message tonight. Somebody sent this to me this week. I, you know, we're in a season of prayer. We're setting aside the first Saturday of every month to pray as part of our service. Uh, and we just, we believe that God is moving. And, uh, and he's asked us to ask him. And sometimes he does things without us having to ask. But there are a lot of times where he says, no, you, you got to ask. you got to step into a moment of prayer. And, uh, and so here's one that was sent to me this week. It says, I have a praise report I wanted to share. I got their permission to share it. I'm going to leave out their name just to protect the privacy of their family. It says, so many miracles happened while I was away visiting my family. My parents and I haven't spoken in four years. My father was an alcoholic for most of my life, and I had allowed a lot of that resentment and unforgiveness to settle in my heart. Since last week, my younger sister encouraged me to reach out to them. She told me they wanted to speak, but that I would have to be the one that would reach out first. Prayed about it, sought wise counsel with people that I trust, and the next morning, I texted my dad to have coffee. It was fantastic, and he hasn't abused alcohol in years. And later that evening, I went and had dinner with both of my parents, and it was so amazing. So much love and forgiveness. And wanting to move forward as a family together. For a long time, I thought the only way my family and I would reconcile is when I have children. But when my grandmother passed away in December, I felt the Holy Spirit leading me to intentionally pray and fast for my family and our restoration. Also, my best friend and I discussed my faith and my relationship with Christ, and she's been asking more questions and plans to visit church with me. I'm beyond gratitude. I'm beyond excited and full of gratitude for what God is doing in the lives of my family and friends and to be able to share what God is doing in my life with them. So, Father, we just lift up this family to you today, and we know even though they've just taken these first few steps, they're, they're going to be entering into a season of peeling back the layers, and we pray that those layers would keep coming off. And we pray that this restoration would go deeper. We pray that this reconciliation would go deeper. And we pray that it would be lasting. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said, so good, right? Can I just tell you, if if God is doing some things in your life, send it in. Because we want to share it with the church. It inspires people's faith. Think about this book that we read that's so sacred to us. It's full of people sharing their stories of how God is moving. And we believe as we're entering into the season of prayer, God's going to do some things in your life. There's going to be breakthroughs that are coming, and we hope that you would share it with us so that we can share it with everyone else. Well, if you're visiting with us, welcome to our series. We're in a series called Eden. If, if you want to catch up on some of this, you can do it through the website. We've done Born to Suffer and Born to Die, Born to Grow, and then last week we did Born to Rest. 
And each of these messages are really based out of certain texts that we find in the story of creation that are supposed to speak to us about the life that we now live. Next week, I'm going to do Born to Create, and then the week after that, we're doing it two weeks out because I just want to give you a word of caution. If you've got young children that you bring into the service with you, uh, that will not be the week to bring them because we're going to do a sermon called Born to Enjoy. Every so often, we do a message on human sexuality. We do it from the pulpit. We believe that the church has lost its voice when it comes to the conversation about sexuality in the world. And so if you don't want your children to learn some things before you have a chance to talk with them about them, don't bring them in here two weeks from now. Or they're going to learn it from Pastor Fred. (laughs) They were naked in the garden for a reason. That's all I'm going to say. All right. Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15. And I will cause hostility... Between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. The message tonight is entitled, Born to Battle. Born to Battle. The, 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 the title was actually different most of the week, and right at the end of the week, I felt like God was really speaking in my heart about changing the title to Born to Battle. And, uh, and we don't do a planning meeting, not because we feel that it's wrong, but it's just life is busy, and, uh, and then we just trust the prophetic flow of the service, and then here, uh, just Tara tonight, picking those songs about battling, right, as part of the worship, and not knowing the title of the message. And so as we did both of those songs, it was just a reminder to me that th- this is the word that God has for us has for us tonight. The sound of the Lord God, the sound of the Lord God. If you're sitting next to someone who's said something stupid before, raise your hand. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. That's going to get you in trouble. (laughs) Don't do that. Don't do that. Somebody's like, right? All of us have said dumb things in our lives. All of us have said dumb things in our lives. I, I remember, I remember the first time that I said something terribly stupid. I remember the first time. Early elementary school, this is a true story, early elementary school, my family, we were out uh, after church on a Sunday, and to get a, for, to, when we would go, uh, we grew up in the Richmond area, and, and our place to go, if we were going to have a special meal, we would go to Shoney's. Anybody remember, remember Shoney's? Right? And I would either get the Shoney's Big Boy, or I would get the fish and chips, which I know if you're British, the fish and chips at Shoney's was probably blasphemy, but nonetheless, I enjoyed them. And so my sister and I, my brother wasn't there yet. He's 11 years younger than we are. We were sitting there, and we were kind of goofing off and cutting up a little bit, as kids tend to do. And, and, and so my dad kind of gave us some correction, and, and he had to speak to us multiple times, which was not the norm, right? And, uh, and so finally, my dad said, um, because you've been disobedient, when you, when you get home, speaking to me, because my sister calmed down and I didn't, you're, you're going to get a spanking. I'm like, all right, it's my, not my first time in that rodeo. And uh, so, so as, we, as we leave, we're getting into the car. Oh, yeah, I did it. And as I'm climbing into the back seat, my dad gave me a swat, you know. Nothing hard, just, just a tap. And you know what I said? That... Yeah, who said that? <laughs> I know. Did you ever say that to your parents? Yeah, yeah. Your kid said it? I said, that didn't hurt. Right? And as soon as it came out, I'm like, why, why did I say that? Right? And my dad very calmly said, well, when we get home, I'll rectify that for you. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he got into the front seat, and uh, it was the longest ride home, right, in my life. We pulled up into our driveway, and as we got out of the car, my dad said, go to your room. So I went to my room, and a few minutes later, I heard a sound. Yeah. Yeah, you can feel it, David, right? David's like, whoo. It was the sound of my father walking down the hall towards the bedroom. Right? We, we grew up in this one-story brick rancher, and, and, uh, and all the bedrooms were at the, end of this, at the end of this long hall. My mom still lives there. Our kids have been in the house many times, and uh, you can imagine, right, in that long hallway, I could just hear the footsteps of my father making his way to my room. Genesis 3.8. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. And what I'm going to suggest to you tonight, I'm going to read this in three different translations in, in my study this week, is that, is that we've gotten this text completely wrong. Let me read it to you in the King James. It says, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord amongst the trees of the garden. The New American Standard gets, gets closest, but doesn't quite get there all the way. It says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees in the garden. The phrase, the sound of the Lord God, is a very unique and very distinct Hebraic phrase. It's called Yahweh Elohim. And this phrase in Hebrew, you find it all throughout the Old Testament. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, you, found it, you find it in that book 14 times all by itself. And, and, and what you also find is that not every time, but many times, there's a certain verb that is attached to this phrase called Yahweh Elohim, that, that means it's the Lord's expectation of obedience or the Lord's call to obedience. You see, when we read it in most of the translations that are given to us, I think we're given the impression it's as though God is out for his evening stroll. Right? Oh, but he's not out for an evening stroll. He's walking down the hallway towards his children because sin has entered the world and he has to deal with it. Not just sin entering into the world, but sin entering humanity. And something is being set forth until the end of the ages and that God had to respond. I think when we begin to understand what Kol Yahweh Elohim really means, we really begin to understand why Adam and Eve were hiding they weren't just hiding because they were ashamed of their sin. They were hiding because they knew judgment was coming. They understood that the creator of the universe, the sound of the Lord God, was coming to deal with the situation. And if we don't understand this phrase properly, it causes us to understand the next phrase improperly. 
which happens so often in reading the text of the Bible. The first phrases create a context for us to understand the remaining phrases. So if you read it that God's like a grandfather out for his evening stroll, he's just on a walk, then you would necessarily want to interpret the wind of the day as speaking to the time of when he's walking. But if you understand Kol Yahweh Elohim, as it's used throughout all the rest of Scripture, that God is coming to bring judgment to the moment, then all of a sudden you realize this idea of the cool of the day or of the evening breeze that kind of continues this picture of peace and tranquility has nothing to do with the moment. Genesis 3.8, let me read it again. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. The sound of God coming down the hallway. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. If we back up a little bit, it, the it, New American Standard says the garden in the cool of the day. The King James talks about the, the garden of the cool day. The New Living Translation talks about an evening breeze that was blowing. But this phrase, the wind of the day, is also a very distinct Jewish phrase. And it's surrounded by, it's based on this word ruach, which is the Hebrew word for spirit or for breath. And it is also used for wind, but it's not usually used for a kind of wind that's a gentle breeze. This phrase ruach appears to us in the very beginning of Genesis. When we look in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God, the ruach of God, moved upon the faces of the waters. I think Job 38.1 is a much better verse to help us understand this breeze that was blowing on that fateful day. Job 38.1, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said. It's a different picture now, isn't it? See, when you understand Kol Yahweh Elohim as God walking down the hallway to deal to bring judgment, to bring consequences. This phrase, the wind of the day, is talking about the whirlwind of God's Spirit that is coming with Him. See, the more you begin to understand these phrases, the more again we begin to realize while Adam and Eve are hiding in the trees, while they're hiding in the garden, they know that judgment is coming but God isn't just coming to deal with the disobedience of the moment. Heaven is about to declare war on evil, and humanity is supposed to be on the front lines because you and I were born to battle. This moment is not just about Adam and Eve, it's about all of humanity. In this moment, as we see, as we begin to get into Genesis 3.15, is that you and I are being invited and asked by the creator of the universe to participate in a battle that is supposed to hold back evil until Jesus' second coming. Jesus is walking down the hall and there is a whirlwind that's coming with him. And you and I are being asked to be a part of that whirlwind in the world in which we live Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between you 
and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise, which also means to strike, you on the head, and you shall bruise him, which also means to strike, on the heel. Now, is this a prophetic picture of the coming of Christ? Absolutely it is. That's why the pronoun shifts from from plural to seed to singular for he. It's talking about the coming of Christ. And that we know that Lucifer is going to instigate Jesus' death. That's the idea, that he's going to strike Christ on his heel, but then Jesus is going to raise raise himself from the dead and overcome sin and death, and he's going to strike back. But as with all prophetic texts in Scripture, there are layers of meaning. It's why it starts out talking about her seed, Eve, and his seed, Lucifer. That's you and me. Is that you and I are born into an epic battle that's taking place in a realm that you and I cannot see. Now, I know it felt like an epic battle today when we were trying to cut down those trees and they were fighting back, right? There's moments in this life, right, where we struggle in natural physical circumstances, and that's another sermon for another day when the curse comes down to Adam about how we're going to have to labor over the soil. I don't know about you, when we were digging up some of those roots, right, I want to curse Adam for the curse that was spoken. Thank you, Vanessa. Yeah, I know we felt it. That's why man invented chainsaws. Praise the name. But Genesis 3.15 isn't just a prophecy of the coming of Christ. It is a prophecy of the coming of the people of God who are going to stand and fight a spiritual battle on behalf of our king. And when we look at Genesis 3.15, it says that Lucifer is going to strike us. If you live for any amount of time, you know he's good at what he does. Temptation is real. If he was able to convince a third of the angels of heaven to rebel against God, he's good at temptation. If he was able to convince Adam and Eve to eat fruit from the one tree that God said, don't eat from that tree, he's good at what he does. He strikes. Many of us have stories and brokenness, things from our past, regret that we carry. The Bible talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's how he strikes against us. But the text doesn't just say that he strikes. The text says that we're supposed to strike. This text is to remind us that you and I, when we make a vow of devotion to Christ and become enmity, an enemy of the devil himself, who's then going to orchestrate a plan to try to pull us away, that he's going to strike us with temptation, we are not supposed to live our lives in some spiritually passive mindset that hopes that we're going to hunker down, get into the corner and cover up, and he's just going to pound us until one day we breathe our last and find our way into heaven. No, no, no. We're supposed to strike back. We're supposed to strike back. Christianity is not about passivity, it's about aggression. It's just about aggression that's pointed in the right direction. How about 1 Corinthians 10, 13? The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. What's Paul talking about? He's talking about the devil striking us. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. And when you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. How about 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9? Stay alert. 
Peter says, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. What, what does Paul say? I mean, Peter says here, stand firm against him. These two texts are important. Sometimes you've got to pull out from that situation of temptation. That's what Paul's talking about. But sometimes Peter says, no, 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 don't run. You stand and fight. Sometimes you retreat so that you can fight another day, but sometimes we've got to stand our ground. Stand firm against him, Peter says. Be strong in your faith. Listen to what it says here. Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering that you are because he's striking out against everyone. How about 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5? I love these. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. That sounds a little intense, doesn't it? It sounds like aggression. It sounds to me like battling because we were born to battle. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. It actually sounds a lot like parenting. That's another sermon for another time as well. Somebody say to strike and bruise. John 18.10. Then Simon Peter drew a sword and slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Shall Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the Father has given me? Christianity is aggression that's pointed in the right direction. This story is important to us, and we've taught on this story before. Peter is a prophetic picture of the church. We're going to get into that in the series coming out of Legacy Weekend. We're going to do an entire series, and Pastor David and Pastor Justin and I met this week, and he's going to teach a little bit on the youth, and then Pastor Justin and I are going to teach on it together at both campuses. And this new mission statement that we feel like God's given to us for this new season to build the church that Jesus envisioned to love the world he died to save. A lot of that's based out of Matthew 16, where Jesus declares that he's going to build his church. And he says that in connection with Peter. So as you begin to follow Peter throughout Scripture, we identify him as a prophetic picture of all the church. And he certainly is, I believe, in this story. It's a powerful picture for us because some of you here tonight, you're not especially excited to be here. And you have good reason for that. Because you, like Malchus, have been in church settings before where you've been wounded and hurt by the people that you were supposed to trust to lead and mentor you. People have serious stories about being hurt in church. We want to be a church that reaches people who don't know Christ, but we also want to be a church that reaches people who know Christ but have fallen out of love with His church, and for good reason. It's not an accident that Peter swipes off his ear because I believe that's a prophetic picture for us too. 
It's not just a picture of the aggression of the church lashing out against the wrong people, but this idea of striking him on the ear is reminiscent of Jesus is saying all throughout his teaching, he who has an ear, let him hear. So many times when Jesus was teaching, he began his teaching that way. Because he understood that there is a spiritual ear that you and I have that we're born with that that gives us the ability to know when God is speaking to us. But it's possible for that part of who we are to be spiritually wounded. And one of the ways that it's spiritually wounded more often than not is through disappointment in the church. People that you trust. People that you follow. People that make promises. People who make declarations about integrity and purity and then you find out after the fact that they've been living a duplicitous life. It's like the sword comes down all over again and that ear is wounded. I love that Jesus bends down and picks up the ear of Malchus. And he reaches out his hand, puts it on the side of this man's head and heals him in that moment. You see, because Peter in that moment is a picture of the aggression of the church pointed in the wrong direction, and Jesus in that moment is the picture of the church as it's supposed to be, to be a place of healing and to be a place of restoration. So that Malchus's ear could be reattached to his body but to also create a prophetic picture for you and I that if you're in here tonight and spiritually you walked in like this because you've been wounded, whether it was yesterday or 30 years ago, Jesus wants to bring healing to your life so that you can hear his voice again. And the healing that he brings, listen to me, doesn't just bring you into relationship with him, it brings you into relationship with his family, which is hard. Because for you, it's going to be the family that wounded you. It might not be the same church, and it might not be the same people, but it's going to feel that way to you. And just as you learn to trust Christ again, just as you begin to learn to hear his voice again, you've got to be willing to learn to trust the people of God again. And this is where it gets hard. Because chances are, you're going to get hurt again. Because we're all people and we're all broken. And going into these relationships with church families requires us to take risk. But you and I have to be willing to step into those moments. We have to be willing to be wounded again. You know why? Because you and I are supposed to be the Christ in the story that helps other people heal. And if you isolate yourself over here because you're afraid of being wounded again, then the people that are trusting again and need people to stand with them to help them heal, there's nobody there to do it, and you're supposed to be a part of it. And one of the reasons why you're supposed to be a part of it is that you're supposed to be able to look at them and say, I know how you feel. I've been there before myself. We should never let the failure and the mistakes of others rob us of the good things that God wants to give to us. To strike and bruise. 
speaking of the church at large everywhere, we are failing society and losing moral ground because we are spending more time striking and bruising one another than we are taking the battle to the devil. We are failing society, losing moral ground, because we're spending more time striking and bruising one another than we are taking the battle to the devil. See, Genesis 3.15 isn't just about telling us that there's going to be a battle. Genesis 3.15 isn't just telling us that you and I are supposed to be a part of the battle. Genesis 3.15 is also there as a stark reminder for who our enemy is, and it is not one another. It's always the enemy. It's always the devil. It's always the source of evil that's in the world. Mark 3.25, Jesus made a profound statement. He said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. They were accusing Jesus in that moment, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they were accusing him in that moment of operating under the influence and the, and the, and the power of the devil. And, and Jesus says, I, I can't be from him because I'm always speaking out against him. If I were from him, right, then we would be a divided house. And even though he's talking and responding to this accusation that's being given to him, it's also wisdom for us and for the body of Christ because it's a true statement. That a house divided against itself cannot stand. If the people of God and the body of Christ is supposed to be on the front lines of battling the enemy in this world until the return of Christ, we will continue to fail unless we find a path forward together in unity. I'm 52. I've been around the church my entire life, grew up in the church, and when I look back 30 years ago or so, or, or so I, would, I would argue tonight that most of the church then was divided because of doctrinal divide. Churches tended to differentiate themselves from one another by very specific doctrinal beliefs. And, and, and what I believe we found happen over time over these last several decades is we've made great progress in that. We have. Churches are willing to work together in ways today that, that I didn't see when I was younger. Even here, the four churches that share this campus, we have very different theological positions and theological beliefs. I'm not even sure, if, in speaking of myself, when I made a vow of devotion to Christ in my early 20s, if, if someone had said to me that you're going you're, you're gonna to one day pastor and, and, and share a, a building with this church and shared me their beliefs, I would probably have said, no, I don't, I don't think that we should because they believe differently than we are. But the churches make, make great progress. We're, we're beginning to come together. So I think the devil, he's changed his tactic because he's good at what he does. I think he realizes that he's losing the doctrinal divide, and you know what he's picked up instead? He's picked up the political divide. Yeah, he's picked up the political divide. I think that the political divide that's happening in the body of Christ today is the greatest enemy that we face as the body of Christ and us coming together in unity. It's why for us as a church, we're trying to be intentional about doing some specific things. 
I'm a part of a group called the VUP, the Virginia Unity Project, which was birthed out of a, a group of black pastors here in the 757. And when I heard about it, Chris, who's our, our worship and creative arts director, you know him. He's often here, and I think he's on the Suffolk campus tonight. And his mom helped to spearhead that and was a part of it. And I was like, I'm going to start showing up at those meetings. Because the only way that we're going to bridge the gap of the divide that we face is if we just start sharing time and space with each other. Listening to one another. Learning from one another. You see, this battle that we're called to and the aggression that we're supposed to demonstrate doesn't have to necessarily look like a fight for it to be effective. That's why as a church, when the Virginia Unity Project is, is, is establishing events, we show up at them. And I hope you start showing up more than you have because of this message tonight. There's a worship night coming up. I believe it's uh, September 25th. We go to those not because we're just trying to create an extra worship experience for people because you just need a little push to get to your weekend service. We create those nights together because it's one of the ways that we battle. It's one of the ways that we battle the enemy and the divide that he's trying to bring is we show up in a space together, people who believe differently, people who look differently, people who have different doctrinal positions, people who have different cultural positions, people that have different political beliefs. We stand together as one. It's one of the ways that we wage war against the enemy of our soul, is that we come together as one, even though we have differences. And we begin to build relationships, and we begin to learn from each other, and we begin to listen to each other, and all of a sudden, it doesn't mean that we change one another's mind, because that's not what unity looks like. Unity can only happen if there's harmony, and there's only harmony if there's diversity. God wants people with different beliefs and different viewpoints to come together. Because each one of those viewpoints, in some way, are a reflection of Him. And we're supposed to stand together as one. It's one of the reasons why our vision for this campus is for churches here working together. Jesus' prayer in John 17, he said a lot of things. But one of the things that he said is that he prayed that his church would be one as both the Father and the Spirit and he are one. So for the rest of our days as a church, campuses that we plant, you know what we're going to pursue? We're going to pursue partnerships and relationships with churches. A lot of times they look really different than who we are and believe different things. There's enough common ground for us to share, to move forward together in partnership. It's one of the ways that we battle. It's one of the ways that we bring the fight to the enemy, is that we stand together as one. We did it today. I was so excited walking around this property today. As we were working, every now and again, I just looked up to take it all in. Catalyst Church, which is the renting church that's here on Sunday mornings, showed up with about 10 people, said, we're here to help. We heard there was a work day. We're coming to work. It's not even their property. Come on. So good. And they worked all day with us. And the far parking lot, Lifehouse was down there with just scores of people. There must have been 40 people down there. You know what they were doing? They were putting together bunk beds for missions outreach. They're down there putting together bunk beds for missions outreach. And then us in Catalyst Church, there was probably about 40 or 50 of us. We had about 10 different work teams. There were five pickup trucks, especially a blacked out turbo diesel dually. constantly wrote, you guys, before you leave, make sure you go look around the back at that brush pile. Making progress. Epicenter, the church plant. Dominic, who's on the keyboard, who lied about his birthday. God forgive him. <laughs> I'm telling your mama. <laughs> 
His mom and dad planning a church right in that chapel right down there, Epicenter on Sunday mornings. There's a church meeting in there on Sunday morning and one right in here at the same time. All of us different, believing different things, looking differently. This is part of what we feel like God has called us to do as a church, is to do practical things to bring the body of Christ together. Why? Because that's what the aggression of the church is supposed to look like. And then the way that we wage war is that we lift up our voices in worship. The way that we wage war is that we begin to pray and intercede for the body of Christ. We did it just this past Wednesday. Again, we do these worship nights about three or four times a year. Again, we're not trying to just create some nice little experience for you to help get you to the weekend service. It's one of the ways that we do battle together. So I hope that as you begin to see these events that are popping up on the calendar, you're going to make room for them. Not because you're showing up at a church event, but because you were born to battle. And the way that we fight is that we stand together as one, waging war against the enemy, especially through prayer and worship. Shani Miller's got an event that's coming up soon. We're going to be talking about that. We're going to be waging war together there. Come on, Shani. I'm going to invite the band to make their way back to the stage. Genesis 3.8, Kol Yahweh Elohim. For some of you here tonight, you've never made it past the story of the imagery of my dad walking down the hallway to deal with me because that's where you are with God. For some of you, this whole message, it stopped right there. And that's where you've been for these last 30 or so minutes. Can I just tell you, the end of the story is really different now than it was for Adam Adam and Eve, because part of the prophecy that we find in Genesis 3 has been fulfilled, and his name is Jesus Christ. See, there was not yet a means of forgiveness yet for Adam and Eve for their relationship to be restored to God immediately All of humanity entered into a time and a season that lasted for centuries of being separated from him. But Jesus showed up to change all of that. See, you and I are still just like Adam and Eve in the sense that we cannot wait to run to the tree to eat the fruit that we're not supposed to eat. We live our lives doing the things we're not supposed to do and not doing the things that we should. And all of us have had a feeling even though maybe until tonight you've not been able to articulate it, it's the Kol Yahweh Elohim. It's the sound of the Lord God. It's the wind of the day, the whirlwind of Him coming. You have this sense of being wrong. You have this sense of being ashamed. You have this sense of being guilty, and so you hide. In your job, in your addictions, in your relationships that are broken, in the computer after everybody else goes to bed, looking at the things that you're not supposed to. As a young person with the crowd that you're not supposed to run with, we could just keep right. We hide in plain sight. But see, it's different now. Because now the sound of the Lord God coming, even though it sounds like judgment, even though there is a whirlwind that comes with him, it's not to cast you out like Adam and Eve. It's to invite you in. Because Jesus died for you. And he paid a price. 
And from the moment he gave his life on the cross 2,000 years ago, he made a way for us to go back to Eden. Not a place of geographic identity, but a place that you can only live with God on the inside that's even more perfect, listen to me, than anything that Adam and Eve ever experienced. That there is a walk with God, a relationship with God that can be yours. And Jesus made a way for it to be yours tonight. Stand with me. Father, I pray for every person that's in this room who we can see but are hiding in the trees of life. Every person that's in this room tonight who we can see with our natural eye, but on the inside, they're just like Adam and Eve, cowering in the woods of the human experience. I pray that something would shake loose for them tonight. That they would feel Jesus, you standing in front of them, extending a hand to them calling them out of their place of hiding and into a place of restoration of relationship with their creator. I pray for some of them tonight that they would take a step, that Jesus, they would say yes to you and to begin the journey back. To step into a life with you that begins to pursue a destiny that begins to pursue a purpose that you've created for them. For some of them tonight, I feel it so strongly, for some of you tonight, that that you're not going to have the desire later for the things that you normally do. Something inside of you is happening now that you're going to want to leave some things behind. And what I would say to you tonight is trust that sense. Leave some things behind and follow after your Savior. Father, I pray that as we step into this moment of worship and these prayer teams are up here, I pray that there are going to be some people here tonight that find the courage to come for that moment of prayer, that find the courage from their walking from where they are to up here is going to be their way of saying, I'm coming, I'm, I'm coming out of those trees. And I want to start anew and afresh with Christ. But we know it's not just about their transformation. It's also because they were born to battle. There's a place on the front line. There's a gap because they're hiding. I pray, God, that you would stir something up inside of them and something up inside of all of us, that we would engage the fight, that we would see that you're asking us to be a part of this epic battle against evil in the world, that we're going to point our aggression in the right way, in the right direction, that we're going to stand together with people in the body of Christ that might be different from us. And then in the 757 over these next several months and over these next few years, that we're going to see a change. We're going to see a change. That we're going to take the fight to the enemy like it's ever been taken before. And then each of us would be a part of it. Come on, in Christ's name, and everybody said, amen. Let's worship together.